0: Welcome to the Adventist Church of the Woodlands podcast where you will find sermons, devotional thoughts, and current event conversations all based on a biblical worldview. Good morning. Happy Sabbath. Before I begin this morning, I'd like to just pray a short prayer. Heavenly Father, when we serve up here at this pulpit, We are your servants, and we are here, Lord, to represent you rightly. To do that, Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit, that your Spirit will speak through us, and as well that your Spirit be with everyone here in the congregation, that their hearts and their minds would be open to receive what you would have presented this morning before them. Now, Lord, I pray, empty me of myself, and Lord, lead as we study Daniel chapter 9 this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Very briefly, well, first of all, I want to remind everybody that this series, if it's done nothing else, has told us, reinforced that God is in charge. Amen. And I want to add to that, and he is faithful. He is faithful. Thank you. That, that really touched me, the first, the first hymn that we sang you know, during our praise time. Great is thy faithfulness. There are only two things, if I say only two things, it's not going to be as short as it sounds, that I want to cover today. One is Daniel's prayer in chapter 9. I think there may be a tendency, and maybe some of us have done this, I know I have, so I can say that, is to pay more attention to the prophecy that follows the prayer than the prayer. I think Daniel's prayer has a lot to say to us. And then the second thing I want to talk about is the prophecy concerning the 2,300 days and the first advent of Jesus Christ. And I want to present it to you a little bit differently than I have seen it presented a number of times by evangelists. Um, Just a quick show of hands, if you're willing, how many were confused a little bit by the presentations that they've seen of this? Okay. (laughs) All right, I know, I know I was you know just the way that it came out, and I hope today to to go ahead and make that a bit clearer than we've seen in the past, not to say that the way they did it was wrong, it just wasn't one that connected with me, so a little bit of review before we start, as we close chapter eight of the book of Daniel, Gabriel is told to provide Daniel the interpretation of his vision, and Gabriel. Tells Daniel that the vision refers to the time of the end, and he reveals the identity of the two-horned ram representing Medo-Persian Empire, and the male goat representing Greece. Also, its representation of the first king by the little by the uh, horn on the uh, the uh, the male goat, and the division of the Greek Empire into four parts upon the death of Alexander the Great, its first king. Then Gabriel proceeds with a dark description of the little horn power and its eventual demise, and we learned last Sabbath that the little horn is the Roman Catholic Church and its head, the Pope. On the heels of the description of the little horn, obliterating the ministry of the heavenly sanctuary service, the question is asked in Daniel 8, verse 13, then I heard a holy one speaking and another one said to that certain one who was speaking, how long will, be, will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled under foot? The answer comes in Daniel 8 verse 14 and says, and he said to me, for 2,000 300 days or as the rsv reads evenings and mornings then the sanctuary shall be cleansed gabriel then tells daniel that the vision of the evenings and the mornings is true he tells daniel to seal up the vision and that it refers to many days in the future at this point gabriel's revelation proves too much for daniel And he faints before Gabriel interprets the 2,300 days. And he remains sick for days because of it. Gabriel has been instructed, though, to make Daniel understand the vision. And true to his trust, he returns again to Daniel in chapter 9 to complete that commission. Before we discuss the 2,300 days any further, though, let's read Daniel's prayer in chapter 9. Now, just to introduce chapter 9 for a second. In the first verse of chapter 9, Daniel tells us it is the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus the Mede. Thirteen years have elapsed since the vision of Daniel 8 in chapter 9. That may be surprising. Yeah, so, you know, our time is not always the Lord's time, right? So Daniel's been studying the scriptures, most notably Jeremiah the prophet. And he affirms the number of years that Israel was to be in exile in Babylon. It's 70 years. The end of which is quickly now approaching. He no doubt recalls his last vision in the pronouncement that it will be 2,300 days, then the sanctuary would be cleansed. Daniel understands this period of time is symbolic in nature. It is the place to which chapter 8 points us. Daniel is well aware of Ezekiel's portrayal of the siege of Jerusalem in chapter 4 of the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel enacts symbolically the siege of Jerusalem for 430 days. In the close of verse 6, God says that he has laid on Ezekiel a day for each year. He's also familiar with the same principle in Numbers 14, verse 34, where Israel is told they shall spend 40 years in the desert, one for each day that they spied out the land of Canaan. So in Daniel's mind, as he prays, he may very well have been trying to reconcile the notion that it would be 2,300 years before worship would be reestablished in the temple at Jerusalem. So recall that we've been studying the book of Daniel. We've noted that he is a man of prayer. And I think that it's safe to say that Daniel is a man after God's own heart. We should be very interested now in his prayer an example of how a praying man or a praying woman prays. So there are some principles that should draw our attention while reading Daniel's prayer. First of all, Daniel prepared for prayer by fasting, wearing sackcloth, and putting ashes on his face. Now I'm not advocating that you have to wear sackcloth and and put ashes on your face, but you're welcome to if you wish. He prays with a sense of great humility and urgency. And that's what the sackcloth and the ashes was amplifying, is this sense of humility in his uh, demeanor. Daniel has been studying the scriptures also and seeking understanding. If we saw that he went back to the book of Ezekiel and was looking to see what that had to say. He also addresses God's greatness, faithfulness, righteousness, And awesomeness. He confesses the sins of his people and he includes himself as part of the corporate body of Israel. He's praying as if on behalf of Israel. Next, he expresses that the fault for the current circumstances of Israel lies with Israel's breaking God's covenant. The fault does not lie with God. He prays with earnestness and seeks God's glory in so doing. And he claims God's promises. He recalls the conditions of the covenant. It would do us well to recall these principles when we pray. We can apply them individually to our private prayer, and we can apply them also as well to corporate prayer. Now, as a congregation, we're about ready to embark on corporate prayer for a place we can call our own, where we can gather together to worship the Lord and fellowship and carry out the ministries of our church, and as importantly as all of that, where we can minister to our surrounding community. So let's read Daniel's prayer. He starts by approaching God with humility and earnestness and these first couple of verses I'm going to read from the Revised Standard Version. His account begins with, in verse 3 and 4, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and supplications, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and terrible God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. You can follow with me the rest of the way using the NIV if you wish. In verse 4 through 6, Daniel begins to confess Israel's unfaithfulness, and it reads, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and your laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. In verses 7 through 10, he draws a contrast between the righteousness of God and Israel's unfaithfulness. Lord you are righteous but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel both near and far in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you we and our kings our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame. Lord because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. I hope you're picking up in this that part of his prayer is very much confessing sin. And since he's praying on behalf of the corporate body Israel, confessing the sins of that body. Next he goes on, and he, sh- and he speaks about the judgments of God being our fault. And God is right in bringing the disaster on Israel. So therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses... The servant of God has been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Going on verse 15 and 16, now Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day. We have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord in keeping with all your righteous acts turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. The circumstances in which Israel is in have been brought on by their own behavior. God has been righteous in his judgment in allowing them into the captivity And now, Daniel is appealing to God's righteousness to bring this to an end. Something we should learn here from this last part of the reading is, if we do not live what we profess, we bring scorn on God's name. Now, the basis for Daniel's plea comes in verses 17 through 19. Now our God. Hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear our God and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. We should remember always that when we go to God in prayer, we make our request to him not because we are righteous or somehow deserve something, but we make it based upon him being righteous. So where does Daniel claim God's promise? Claims God's promise by the prayer itself, no doubt that Daniel had studied 2 Corinthians 7 verse 14 and he had it in mind when he made his petition. This comes from Solomon's dedication of the temple in Jerusalem upon its completion and its inauguration. Second Chronicles 7.14 says this, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Again, this is an important prayer. I encourage that each of us should read this prayer from time to time and recall the depth and principles illustrated in it. Of necessity do not doubt after all we've read this morning the confession of sin is an essential part of prayer it places us reminds us of our relationship to God the testimony of his faithfulness his righteousness as compared to us places us in a right mind to make our requests so moving on to our next section we're going to let'll um, just follow along. Gabriel Gabriel arrives. He shows up while Daniel is praying. While Daniel is speaking, Gabriel whom Daniel had seen in the vision of chapter eight, arrives and tells Daniel that he has come to give you, that is Daniel, skill to understand. Well, to understand what is Gabriel come to? Well we understand that. Daniel's mention of seeing Gabriel in the vision draws our attention to the vision and the part not yet made clear. That is the meaning of the 2300 days. So in regard to the cleansing of the sanctuary first we need to understand what it means or refers to. Gabriel provides no explanation of this phrase to Daniel. But we can safely assume that Daniel is already familiar with what the cleansing of the sanctuary refers to and there's no need for Gabriel to instruct Daniel. But that doesn't mean that we all understand it. First, we need to talk about a a, uh, Hebrew word translated, by the way, in the New King James Bible as cleansed. The underlying Hebrew word is nitsdak. I hope I've not done it injustice by my pronunciation of it, spelled N-I-T-S-D-A-Q. This word occurs only once in the Bible. A related word tzadak, T-S-A-D-A-Q, occurs in a number of forms more than 250 times in the Hebrew Bible. It's usually translated righteousness, It also may be translated to be righteous, to be just, or to justify, meaning to make something right or to make it appear right. As you may have imagined, there have been challenges translating the word uh, consistently, and there have been several different renderings of it in the English. One notable translation is restored in order to make it fit the case for Antiochus Epiphanes being the little horn. There's been quite a bit of interference in this area of the Bible in trying to make a preconceived notion of Antiochus Epiphanes uh, appear appear scriptural. But we have substantial support, uh, support, I should say, for translating Nitzchak as cleansed. In order to know how Daniel would have understood Nitzchak, we look to two translations of the Hebrew text into Greek by Jewish scholars in ancient times. Both of these translations render the word as the Greek word, the Greek equivalent word for cleansed. As well, we find that the the celebrated Christian scholar, Jerome, after extensive conversation with a Jewish rabbi, translated it in his native, and in Latin translation, into the Latin word for cleansed. And the King James and New King James Version also support that. So what is this cleansing of the sanctuary? The culmination and high point of the annual Jewish religious calendar is the Day of Atonement. We know it as Yom Kippur. It's observed on the 10th day of the 7th month of the Jewish calendar. It's the only day that the High Priest enters the innermost apartment of the sanctuary, known as the Most Holy Place. It is where the Ark of the Covenant resided, Behind the veil, dividing it from the first apartment or holy place. The purpose of the high priest's entry into the most holy place from the holy place was to cleanse the sanctuary. All Israel was summoned to the sacred service on the first day of the seventh month by the blowing of trumpets, and we know that day as Rosh Hashanah. And the period in between is considered by by Israel to be all-inclusive. You can read about the cleansing of the sanctuary in Leviticus 16. The cleansing of the sanctuary is a day of judgment. It's a day of judgment of God's people. In preparation for this, the children of Israel were to afflict their souls leading up to the service. They were to introspectively recall the previous year and any unconfessed sin. Differences between them were to be resolved and put away. They were to prepare themselves for the Lord's judgment. Anyone who did not take this seriously was to be cut off from Israel forever. It was believed that any unconfessed sin in the camp or any unconfessed sin of the priest would result in his death upon entering the most holy place. Though you won't find this in scripture, tradition says that the high priest wore bells, And a rope was tied to his ankles. And if the bell stopped tinkling, it would be assumed that the high priest was struck dead and the rope would be used to pull his dead body out of the sanctuary. There's no record that this ever happened. Thank God, yes. The service symbolized the removal of the record of all sin that had accumulated in the sanctuary by means of the application of blood of sacrifices to the golden altar, an altar of burnt offering, over the previous year. Two goats were selected, one by uh, by lot, and one was assigned as the Lord's goat and the other scapegoat. The Lord's goat would be slaughtered and its blood carried into the sanctuary, into the most holy place, and applied to the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. As the priest exited the sanctuary, the blood would be applied to the golden altar and the altar of burnt offering. The high priest would exit the tabernacle, lay his hands on the scapegoat, figuratively transferring the responsibility of the recorded sin of Israel onto the animal, which was then led away from the camp, never to return. You could tell, huh? All right, thank you. Happens when you get nervous, right? The priest would then declare that Israel was righteous before God. Well there's so much more to be said about the sanctuary and its services for our purposes allow me to summarize what all this meant symbolized the judgment of God's people the lord's goats symbolized Christ the goats death is atoning sacrifice the scapegoat symbolized satan the priest laying his hands on the scapegoat symbolized the final responsibility for sin being transferred to satan who will never Return to God's people again. It is the eradication of sin. When we understand the day of atonement is the day of judgment, we find a parallel in the judgment scene of chapter 7. What does this mean in terms of Daniel's vision and the 2300 days? Gabriel said it was, or Gabriel said it referred to many days in the future, yet we know that the temple was rebuilt and the religious system and practice re-established at Jerusalem. Recall we're studying a prophecy that employs symbolism, and as we have already said, the 2,300 evenings and mornings are symbolic. We have also discovered they stand for 2,300 years. Let's go back to Gabriel's arrival when he interrupts Daniel in prayer to give Daniel understanding. Gabriel tells Daniel in Daniel 9, verse 23 and 22 and 23, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. What vision is he referring to? Gabriel is referring to Daniel's vision in chapter 8. He is going to reveal the beginning of the 2300 days, and the Messiah's mission is part of the 2300 days. So we're going to read Daniel 9.27 and allow Gabriel to elaborate on what would occur within the 2,300 days and when it would begin. And we're going to carefully construct an illustration of what Gabriel reveals regarding the events. Now hopefully this will clear it up if anybody has been confused to date so far. We start right off with 2,300 days equaling 2,300 years. We have no start date. Gabriel's not given him that. But we do know that at the end of 2,300 years, judgment begins. And it says in verse 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So we still don't have a beginning date, but we have 70 weeks that have been marked out of that 2,300 2300 days or 2,300 years. The 70 weeks, the Jewish calendar, um, 70 weeks times seven is 490 years. Turn to the next one, please. Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. Referring to the book of Ezra chapter 7, verses 13 through 26, which I will not belabor reading. You can read that. That is the decree that is being recalled in Daniel by Gabriel. And in Daniel 9.25, we see a seven-week period and a 62-week period. Added together, that's 69 weeks or 483 years. Go ahead and move to the next And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. So we now find that in the middle of that last week, Jesus Christ is crucified. Daniel 9 verse 26. And finally, and in verse 27, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice an offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out. In the middle of the week, we find that Jesus Christ is sacrificed. But yet, we still have time going to the end of this 70 weeks. And if we look at Acts chapter 7, verses 57 through 60, we witness Stephen's testimony before the Sanhedrin and just before they take him out and stone him to death as the final rejection by the Jewish leadership and the nation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That fulfills the 490 years at the beginning. But something else is important because... This is a description of the 2,300 days or 2,300 years. It has the same starting date as the 70 weeks. And when we project that into the future, we come to October of 1844. So what does that mean to us, the judgment in 1844? Well, nothing happened here. Well, things happened here, but... They happened because people misunderstood. Through study and prayer, it came to the attention of early Adventists that there was a ministry of Jesus Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. As is common today among many churches, was common then, is that the book of Hebrews wasn't paid a lot of attention to either. The implications of it, that there actually is a heavenly sanctuary in which Jesus is ministering on our behalf. So if there is a heavenly sanctuary and there's going to be a cleansing of the sanctuary a sanctuary can't be the one here on earth, it's the one in the heavenly precincts. So what does that mean to us? When we consider what Israel was charged to do on the Day of Atonement to afflict their souls, do soul searching confess sin, put it away Lean upon God's righteousness. We have our assignment. If we are living in the day of atonement right now, the period defined by this beginning in 1844, Jesus can come back at any moment. Sure, there's some things that we expect are going to happen first, but we're living on the cusp of those things transpiring and his return. And we should be prayerfully, prayerfully, Afflicting our souls, confessing our sin, leaning upon his righteousness, asking him to live through us and carrying this message of the salvation offered through Jesus Christ to the whole world, to everyone in our community, because he's coming back. And if you live in this world, you can't miss the fact that this roller coaster is now heading downhill at breakneck speed. The things that are changing, if we were to think about these 10 years ago, would not even have been imaginable. They're here now. But, but, we have hope. We have something to look forward to. Jesus is coming again. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Adventist Church of the Woodlands podcast. You can find us at woodlandsadventist.org. And you can visit us anytime. You're more than welcome. God bless you and have a great day.